now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, December 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how long would the armed forces' ammunition last anyway? Plus, USAID embarks on a more data-driven approach to mission delivery. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, each time the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey rolls around, agencies use all sorts of strategies to prod more employees to actually fill out the darn thing. The higher the response rate, the more accurate picture agencies get of their workforce attitudes. It's never easy, but a few agencies this year saw their efforts pay off. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman reports. Agencies get a ton of data and insights from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEBS for short. Everything from engagement and morale levels in their workforce, to how satisfied employees feel in their jobs and with their pay, how they feel about agencies' top leadership, their supervisors, how well they think their teams are performing, and so much more. But what do we do with that data? Veronica Hinton asked that question of Chief Human Capital Officers, or Chicos, at a council meeting this week. Hinton is Associate Director for Workforce Policy and Innovation at the Office of Personnel Management. That's the agency in charge of administering the survey each year. But Hinton says collecting the data is only the start. Data is not engaging. Action with data is. And so OPM encourages agencies to share results and actions taken from these results with employees, demonstrating that leadership is listening and incorporating their feedback. And that feedback from employees is critical, Hinton says. Agencies should try to get their hands on as much as possible. The best way to do that? Create what's called a feedback loop. That means sharing the survey results with employees, finding weak points in the data, making changes based on that, and then to complete the loop, tell employees what changed in response to their feedback. Ultimately, that feedback loop ties back to how many employees take FEVs each year. The theory is if employees see changes being made as a result of their input, response rates tend to trend higher. For 2023, the results of FEVs seem very promising. Employee engagement is the highest it's been in years. One question in particular, which is usually one of the lowest scored items from employees government-wide, saw a 5% jump in positive responses. That question? It asks employees if they believe the results of the survey will be used to make their agency a better place to work. The upward trend is strong, but it was still less than half of survey respondents who felt positively about that. Similarly, the government-wide response rate for FEBS this year was 39%, a 4% increase over last year's rate. But it's important to remember that's an average. A few agencies had response rates nearly double that amount. Chico's at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Interior Department, and the Department of Homeland Security saw even bigger surges in their response rates. And all three of them used a very similar strategy, creating that solid feedback loop with employees. Understand why it's important for them to take it and how uh, we would use uh, the feedback that we received to improve things here. Give them an opportunity to actually talk to us, let us know what they're thinking, and then sharing back with them the things that we're doing. Proving to folks that if you speak, we're going to listen and then show them what happened, show them the impact. That last voice is Lori Michalski. She's Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD for short. This year, her agency had 71% of its employees respond to FEVs when it was out in the field this past spring. That's significantly above the 39% government-wide average, but the high level of responses wasn't without major efforts from the department. One of the areas that we really focus on is the I believe, right? And that I believe that the results of this survey really are going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've really been building on for the last few years. Michalski says that she views FEV scores not as numbers, but as what she calls impact indicators. She uses the data to pull out trends, analyze it, and find where she can make a difference. We really focused on implementing the You Spoke, We Listened, This Happened campaign. So reviewing the results of the surveys in 2021, 2022, and identifying focus areas where we could actually focus on that impact. Michalski says, for example, HUD saw a pattern in its FEBS results over the last few years for employees who were concerned over wellness. Many were calling for more activities at work that could improve mental health and wellness. In response, HUD launched a wellness corner to offer some of those opportunities to employees. After making the change based on that feedback, Michalski says there's one more step in the process. We shared that success and those impacts of the voices that we heard with all of our employees. At the Department of Interior, the situation is a little bit different. 
One of the biggest barriers to improving response rates at FEVS is how dispersed that workforce is. Interior has about 70,000 employees, but they operate all across the country. Mark Green is the agency's chief human capital officer. We have uh, many people that are in these rural and remote communities and areas. Um, I think a lot of uh, the difference is we have many of our folks deliver their work uh, in office settings, but we have a large part of our workforce that goes out in the field, out on the land, uh, outside every day. And so they're not really in, a, in an office. So that's a, that brings challenges of itself. Green says he used a FEVS communication guide from OPM to help interior supervisors and managers figure out a strategy to spread the word and encourage more employees to take the survey. The department also set up a web page to offer more information about FEVS to employees and create a clear message of why taking the survey was important. And that message goes all the way to the top. Green says that Interior Secretary Deb Holland really helped us with that uh, senior leader emphasis that cascaded down through all leaders from her level all the way down to our first line supervisors to ensure that the expectation was clear that we would have our leaders at every level make sure that uh, employees had the opportunity to take the thefts while they were on duty and those type things. And to try to boost participation even further, Interior set up an incentive for employees to take the survey this year. Any individual bureau or office at the Interior Department that was able to increase participation in FEBS this year receives an additional two hours of administrative leave as a reward. And those efforts paid significant dividends. Interior got a 64% response rate in the 2023 FEBS, a massive jump from the department's 47% response rate last year. Like many other agencies, Interior also saw its engagement and satisfaction scores tick upward. On the other hand, the Department of Homeland Security is one agency that has struggled to improve its FEV scores. Historically, DHS has ranked at or near the bottom of the best places to work in the federal government rankings each year. But signs from the 2023 FEVs point in a more promising direction. Many of DHS's FEV scores increased by record levels this year. For 2023, DHS employees' engagement increased by three points. Job satisfaction jumped up by six points. That's three times the government-wide average increase for 2023. Roland Edwards, Chief Human Capital Officer at DHS, says the major improvements did not just happen by chance. We can't sit back and admire the problem. Um, this has been established as a priority for every DHS leader, uh, and we are supporting those efforts from the department level through an intensive series of focus groups, uh, getting our team out into the field, actually speaking directly to employees, getting the ground truth. And alongside those more positive results, DHS's response rate jumped from 36 to 44 percent in just one year. Edwards says that the department is focused on speaking directly to employees, often through focus groups and conducting pulse surveys throughout the year. DHS also created a clear three-part framework to try to address the needs of department employees. That's basic needs, confidence, and recognition. How are we ensuring that the guidance and communications that we're putting out to our employees resonate and they're getting clear direction? And then how are we recognizing our employees for a job well done um, for a really dedicated, hardworking workforce? And maybe most importantly, one effort Edwards says he's especially proud of is DHS's new jump teams. These teams are composed of experts across headquarters and component offices at DHS, and they visit field locations across the country to hear directly from employees and figure out ways to resolve specific issues in resources, IT, fleet management, facilities, and much more. Oftentimes, these are things that could be long-standing, and sometimes they are simple resolutions. Sometimes they're a little bit more long-term, and they require more effort to fix. But that's been amazingly helpful. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the U.S. Agency for International Development embarks on a more data-driven approach to mission delivery. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. Agency for International Development is known for operating around the globe. Now it has a geospatial strategy it hopes will improve decision-making and ultimately effectiveness of its aid programs. Details now from USAID's chief geographer, 
Carrie Stokes. Ms. Stokes, good to have you with us. Good to be here. And tell us about the purpose of the geospatial strategy. What is it going to let the agency do that it doesn't do now? So USAID, as you mentioned, is the U.S. government lead for international development and humanitarian assistance. And we work in nearly 100 countries around the world to reduce poverty, strengthen the democratic governance process, save lives, and really help people beyond the technical assistance and the development assistance. We want them to be able to be resilient on their own. And we're faced currently with many complex challenges around the world at the moment. And we need every tool in the toolbox. So this geospatial strategy was needed to strengthen the capacity of our entire agency around the world to access and benefit from the advancements in geospatial data, tools, and technologies. And what are the elements in a geospatial strategy? What's in there? Sure. So the strategy emphasizes what we call a geographic approach to development. This geographic approach really allows us to better understand where we're already working and then compare that to where are the needs the greatest and then help us track the progress of our programs as we're implementing them by location in all the many countries that we work in around the world. So this particular strategy actually has four objectives. The first one is to ensure that our own staff who work all over the world in many different sectors actually get access to um, geospatial data and tools. These tools are advancing so fast right now in the geospatial industry, but it doesn't mean that we've been able to keep up inside our agency with ensuring that everybody has access to this kind, these kinds of advancements. But just having access isn't enough. We also need to ensure that our own colleagues around the world in USAID know how to use them because they are experts in what they do in health, in education, in environment, in climate change, democracy and governance, all these various sectors, but with technological advancements in this digital world in which we all live now, it's sometimes hard to keep up and understand how that can inform the kinds of decisions that we are making every day. So we're also trying to ensure that we can incorporate geographic information throughout many of our policies and our existing strategies that the agency already has in place. And then very importantly, not just looking inward and how we can advance our own operations through using geospatial information, but how we can be leaders globally in the application of geospatial data and technologies for international development and delivering humanitarian assistance. It sounds like then that you are accelerating the ability to visualize and understand what's already going on there, because I guess someone could find out everything by looking through spreadsheets and databases and reports and put it together. But the geospatial incorporates data that's already there in a way that you can visualize on a map and therefore say, hey, wait a minute, we have this going here, but it could probably benefit from that going on there also. Crude way to put it, but is that about what you're headed towards? It is. Um, Where we work shapes how we work. And we believe this strategy will help us better target our programs in the places where we know the need, where we're seeing where the need is the greatest. So, for example, several of our overseas field offices, which we call missions, have brought in dedicated geographic information systems specialists, so GIS. And these people that we help missions hire are from the countries and they have local knowledge, they understand their culture, and they bring with them this expertise to develop custom maps and help visualize and connect the dots about where we may be working, what sectors we may be working in. So just an example, in India, we can now track where women have access to mobile banking tools. That might not seem exciting to us in this country, but USAID works in many places where people don't have access to traditional financial banking that we just take for granted in this country. In the country of Georgia, for example, the GIS specialist there has integrated geospatial visualization to display all of the investments that the uh, USAID mission is making by region and by municipality. And this helps us track our progress with our programs. And then flying over from Eastern Europe right now to uh, the Latin American region, an example there is our GIS specialist is helping us better understand the drivers of irregular migration from Central America. And in the mission in Honduras, we have adopted what we call a geo-targeting approach 
to concentrate our local programs in the 40 municipalities where more than 60% of irregular migrants originate. And we would not be able to do any of this without geospatial data and technology to be able to visualize these complex uh, relationships between what influences particular places where we work. We're speaking with Carrie Stokes. She's chief geographer and director of the Geo Center at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And so you are building your own information geo databases, stuff that you cannot see in the standard commercial map apps that everybody uses that just simply don't show the information you need for the USAID mission. Fair to say? Very fair to say. Yes. So there is a lot of data out there these days. Uh, We're living in a digital world. There's almost a fire hose of digital data coming at us. But within USAID, we need to make sense of what's actually relevant for the kind of work that we are doing and what will help us make better informed decisions about targeting our actual program's future programs and being able to track the ones we already have underway. So what's really important for us is to ensure that we are combining human expertise with information about what's on the ground in a customized way that may not have ever been uh, combined in the past to be able to illuminate relationships, um, trends on the ground, and truly inform what we're doing in in a really fast-paced world these days. And do the commercial GIS tools enable you to build that capability on top of what they offer out of the package? They do. We use what's called proprietary software as well as open source software. As I mentioned earlier, we need every tool in the toolbox these days. So this geospatial industry is continuing to advance. And many players today are designing apps and programs that were not around just uh, even 10 years ago, even five years ago. So it's important for us as uh, the leading international development agency to be able to stay on top of these technologies because uh, the insights that we can generate now are just unparalleled, even compared to when the agency started more than 60 years ago. Sure. And there is a lot of geospatial activity going on in geospatial agencies like NGA and so forth, and particularly the acquisition of commercial satellite imagery. Are you looking at that and saying perhaps this satellite could aim right there and give us that picture, and then you can buy it and add it to your system. Yes, we are. So in-house within USAID, we currently have about 70 people with GIS expertise, half of whom are in our Washington-based offices, the other half of whom are in our overseas field offices. With the expertise that we bring and the technology that exists today, it's also critical to get relevant and timely data sets to include remotely sensed imagery. And we do have relationships with other U.S. government agencies to include NGA, NASA, NOAA, and others in the uh, interagency community, whereby we as a civilian agency can get access to high-resolution satellite imagery. It's not classified data, but it's high enough uh, resolution that's very useful for the kind of work that we do. And examples of how we've been using imagery include tracking forest loss and illegal mining, for example, in uh, the Amazon. We have used it to better understand where refugees are moving. Um, There are quite a few settlements in the country of Colombia for people who have left Venezuela during very difficult times in that country. We have been able to track water resources and anticipate places that may be uh, drying up due to shifts in weather patterns. So having the satellite imagery is just one more really critical layer component of the tools in our toolbox. It's not enough as it is just to be able to see an image of the ground. It's really important to be able to see changes over time and be able to track that and combine it with other layers of data that give us these insights about what's happening on the ground. Safe to say you won't be asking Congress for a U.S. aid fleet of satellites, though. The capability is there to acquire. You are right. Um, We're not a mapping agency, but we do use mapping technology, and we remain very active in the interagency community because our government already is investing quite a bit into space-based technologies to help us better understand life here on Earth and how we can ensure that we're using the resources most effectively and sustainably for humans to continue to live on Earth. So we leverage the relationships and the investments across agencies because it doesn't really make sense for the government to be buying the same data twice. 
this is why it's so important for us in the geospatial community within the interagency community uh, to collaborate. I'm sure some people that oversee these things wish it was only twice that the government pays the same data. But let me ask you about one thing you mentioned, the second part of the strategy, and that is training and making sure that the people who are not geographers but are actually aid practitioners can understand and use these tools. What's the plan for the training and education there? Yes, you you hit on a critical piece here. We can have all the greatest technology, but if if we haven't empowered our own staff to really use it, we're not really going to be, you know, making the progress that we want to internally that the strategy was established to do. So we have internal training programs. We have something we call geofocusing workshops, and they're really kind of fun. We gather our colleagues together in a field mission, and we look at all of the sectors in which that particular field mission is already working. So it may already have programs in health, it may already have programs in food security, it may have programs in education, girls' education in particular, it may already have programs to identify how to empower youth. And so what this geographic approach does is allow us to look at a particular place and understand all the factors that influence that place, not necessarily looking first to the sectoral issue, but what's going on in this particular community. And it allows us to better understand the scale. So when we work from, we have a team of GIS specialists who are based in Washington and what we call the Geo Center, which I lead. And when we work to um, help our colleagues kind of sit down a half day and take a look at all of the different data sets and trends that are happening in their particular sector, which they know well, but we show them maps with the data across all the sectors. And we ask them questions and they start to realize and see, not just know intuitively, but can see, where do we have linkages between, for example, our food security work and our education level, um, uh, efforts to improve education levels. And for example, in the country of Uganda, we discovered through the data and analytics, that there is a very strong correlation between levels of girls' literacy at the household level, as well as the level of food security or food insecurity. And what this means is the higher the education level for girls, the higher and more food secure that household is. And these are interesting findings to come about because our programs are funded separately by sector. So our food security efforts are more focused on traditional uh, activities that you would imagine, improving drought-resistant crops, ensuring that our um, cross-border trade is, in, um, is smooth so that where there may be shortfalls in crop yields, we can supplement that with the market if the market is strong, places where there are surpluses. But girls' education, that's not historically been something that we would think would improve food security at community or even at household levels. So when we can see these linkages, it's really important because then we can now plan more holistically. Does it make sense to be able to, you know, leverage purposely some of the resources that we might have been putting in traditional efforts around food security to also invest in girls' literacy levels? And just to wrap it up, it sounds like you had these geospatial efforts in place already. The strategy kind of organizes them and brings them under some kind of rubric that everybody can understand. That is right. We have already learned from several years of using geospatial data and technology and mapping. We have this geocenter that's been in place for about 12 years, but USAID has historically had minimal geospatial capacity, but it's been disparate and hasn't been coordinated. What this strategy does is it ensures that we are coordinating, it ensures that we are leveraging as best we can, where it makes the most sense, our resources. And it also just institutionalizes and recognizes that even though we may not be a mapping agency, we do work in geographic places that need a lens of a geographic approach, uh, geographic analyses to ensure that we are making the very best and most informed decisions. So this strategy will strengthen those efforts. And we also believe over the five-year period of the strategy that we will also be able to garner further resources to get us to the level of internal capacity that we need to take full advantage of what exists today in our geospatial technology world. Carrie Stokes is Chief Geographer and Director of the Geo Center at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come. So you want to be a millionaire? Here's how. But first... 
How long would the armed forces' ammunition last anyway? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The war in Ukraine and, to some extent, Israel have drained away U.S. weapons and ammunition stockpiles. Numerous studies have cited a shortage of shells, missiles, and, to some extent, launch platforms. And whether the industrial supply chain and the military's own organic supply chain have the capacity to sustain the demand. We get one view now from the National Armaments Consortium Vice President, retired General Al Abramson. General Abramson, good to have you back. Thanks for having me back, Tom. Yeah, and a lot has happened since we spoke during the Association of the U.S. Army Conference just a couple of months ago. That was just days after the terrorist attacks in Israel by Hamas, and we know what's happened and ensued in the world since then, and now there's all these debates about what we do next in Ukraine. What is the armaments, especially the ordnance situation, from the standpoint of the consortium these days? We continue to roll forward. So the senior leaders within the Department of Defense a couple of years ago had already determined that we need to make sure that we have capabilities for today and into the future. And so not luckily, but with deliberate decision, those kinds of decisions to ensure we have enough capabilities, not only for our warfighters, but for our allies moving forward, we have enough in our supply chain. Now, Does the current geopolitical situation challenge some of that stuff? Absolutely. But we have a lot of folks watching that and watching our levels moving forward. Well, there is a shortage now. Say, let's take the howitzer shell. That seems to be the commodity that a lot of these reports focus on, both news reports and think tank reports. And a lot of places make those. Does it take an international, I guess, uh, sense of cooperation to have U.S. stockpiles refilled, but maybe by foreign manufacturers that can make the same spec type of shell because it's an international commodity. Is that where we're headed, do you think? Those are decisions that clearly I don't want to get in front of DOD and the State Department on making those decisions, but I do know that we do have allies that have the capacity to make those munitions and kind of mitigate some of that demand signal that we're seeing today. Uh, within specifically the field artillery round that you're talking about, the 155 round within the United States, we've already started to build a new shell plant, if you will, uh, to get after some of that demand signal. But again, some of our allied partners have that capability, but that's really a discussion with the State Department and OSD and Department of Defense and how we do that partnership to have them build some technical specs that we own. Because that capacity then can be built up relatively quickly. I was talking with someone else recently, and they said, well, we could build and create in some manner another submarine production capability, but it would take billions and billions of dollars in about six or ten years before it could start building submarines. Not right. quite that challenging in, say, the munitions area. Sure, sure. Not that quite challenging, but still the process and the procedures and the EPA and and all of those gates that you have to go through to go from a greenfield, like nothing in there, to an environment that has explosives and all of these things that can really hurt. It really is a process that has to undergo. And just why not use some of our allied nations? Some of the things within the geopolitical realm that you kind of touched on, and I can go on and say with Taiwan, we have to look at Taiwan as well in 2025. We have some strategic partners in that region of the world that potentially we can partner with to build some of our munitions. But again, that's a Department of Defense, State Department kind of decision. And would it be fair to say that the Armaments Consortium maybe joins some of the other groups in saying to the Pentagon, you need to have a much more steady demand signal and not a ramp up and then nothing for a few years. And then now we need seven million new shells next year type of thing, but some kind of a steady approach to this so that there is that continuous supply chain and everything stays in spec and stays with an economic you know, understanding. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Two points on that as, as an acquisition professional myself while I'm in uniform and now as the National Armaments Consortium, we've had the ability to speak with some of the DOD leadership. I know Department of Defense is going through a review Uh, We spoke with the Army Science Board, and one of the things that's just an example of the folks that we continue to speak with is the ability to stabilize funding, predictability funding, 
really does help the industrial base maintain those production levels without too much. What you don't want to have is valleys and peaks of valleys and then a time of no water, if you will. And so being able to get across those particular areas are always good. We're speaking with retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson. He's now vice president of the National Armaments Consortium. And on more, even more current issue, the National Defense Authorization Act looks like they'll avoid, you know, missing a year of 60 or so and getting that done in Congress. The consortium has had some reaction to that, and there's some important provisions in the area of armaments and energetics. Maybe a quick review of what you see that's important in the NDAA. Yes. So one of the things that we see from a National Armaments Consortium perspective, this is the first time in a long time, at least from my perspective, that the Department of Defense and Congress, with the help of Congress, is really putting some verbiage, some policy out to get after tomorrow's types of weapons. And so that we're no longer using yesterday's explosive, yesterday's propellants, but really getting after and investing in what we can do for over the horizon and into the future. And along with that is looking at our supply chain, because we get some of those upstream chemicals from other nations that are no longer friendly to the United States. And how can we do to bring some of those chemicals into the continental United States or more friendlier nations. Right. There is Section 242. It's pretty high up in the bill. Consideration of lethality in the analysis of alternatives for munitions. I guess you wouldn't want to have an alternative that's less lethal or a weaker explosion just because the supplies are local. That's correct. And so one of those, as a perfect lead into that, is CL-20 is one of those things that people will talk about, which was made at China Lake. China Lake CL-20 was made at China Lake a couple of years ago, and it has very good explosive characteristics. But we in the United States have not mastered the ability to make it at an affordable rate. And the language that we see now within the National Defense Authorization Act now will give some credence, now will allow the Department of Defense to do some investment towards making that much more powerful, if you will, explosive at a much more affordable rate and potentially roll it into some of our weapon systems, which we currently don't have in our weapon systems today. I guess it's easier to make it in a less stable fashion, but then it wouldn't be safe for transport and so forth. The trick is getting that final processing in such a way that, and that's expensive, that it can be practical to deploy. Yeah. One of the things that's actually pretty interesting that I learned is going from laboratory to benchmark and from bench to massive production, although we say it, there are some significant leaps and significant gates that need to be met. And it's not that simple. So although we can make CL-20 and investigate it at much smaller levels, to take it at a grand level to make technical term, maybe a couple of million pounds is an auspicious goal to be made and really needs to be looked at at an industrial level. And getting back to our original question about capacity and supplies, something in the NDAA Section 245 is the authority to establish the Defense Industrial Base Munition Surge Capacity Critical Reserve, that's a mouthful, to procure long lead time items and components to accelerate delivery of munitions. This is in the bill. And so another great language in the bill that will allow, because within the acquisition community, it's called a bona fide need. Some of those long lead items, until you get funded for said capability, you can't purchase those long lead items until the funds come. But what this particular part of the bill allows us to do is, well, if we know something is coming, if we know that it's coming, then it allows us to purchase ahead of time those items, those commodities that will take about 12 months to make, 18 months to make, and we'll have them in stockage. So that means we will cut down on the manufacturing time to get after those explosives and those next-gen capabilities. So I think that's another powerful statement within the acquisition community to get capabilities out the door. All right. Sounds like there's a lot of moving parts here, though, but this is something of top concern in DOD is this whole supply chain for the things you shoot at the enemy. And again, uh, my short time in the military, specifically working within the acquisition community, I have not seen a concerted and combined effort to really address the supply chain issues that the military faces on a daily basis. Now, there's challenges across the board, but again, just to see the language in there, 
which will migrate down into Department of Defense senior leaders for us to get after this challenge, I think is a great thing looking forward. I think it's an absolutely great thing and the right thing to do. Retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson is vice president of the National Armaments Consortium. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come. So, you want to be a millionaire? Here's how. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Even in today's inflationary times, the word millionaire has a certain cachet. With a little self-discipline and the power of compound interest, millionaire status is available to federal employees who make wise use of the Thrift Savings Plan. Here with advice on how to get there, retired federal manager Abe Grungold. And Abe, let me ask you the million-dollar question. Did you retire as a TSP millionaire? Tom, I was very, very lucky in my federal career, and I hit the... $3 $3 million mark during my federal career. Uh, I was blessed to have achieved that goal. Wow. All right. So you know how to do it. And let's say someone is simply trying to get to the $1 million level anyhow. What's How do you do it? What's what's What should the basic practices be to get there? So if you are a young federal employee and you want to be in the elite TSP Millionaires Club, it's basically a double-edged sword blaze the path to get there. First of all, you have to contribute as much as you can afford, and at a minimum, the 5% employee contribution where you get the 5% match from the government. And the other side of the sword is to invest as aggressively as you can tolerate. And everyone has a different uh, level of risk but you have to invest somewhat aggressively in order to get there. And that's basically it. It would be also uh, ideal if you could reach out to someone in your organization who has achieved the million-dollar status and get some pointers from that person. I suppose it's possible, but if you stick with the G Fund, is it possible to get there? But maybe even if you can, it means you had a greater upside potential, sounds like. Well, you can achieve a million-dollar status solely investing in the G Fund, but you would have to maximize your contribution to the maximum allowed by the Internal Revenue Service And you would have to put in a very long career, probably 35 to 40 years in order to get to that level. It's very difficult solely investing in the G Fund. I had many uh, co-workers of mine who solely invested in the G Fund during their career, and they did not achieve the million-dollar status. Yeah, so the G right. Okay, so... If you want to not work forever, then you have to be a little bit aggressive. And over the years, the non-G funds, they've fluctuated more, but they've ratcheted up way greater returns long term, fair to say. Yes. You know, certainly the stock market historically has always had its upwards and downward turns uh, for many different types of reasons. And over a long federal career, if you're going to put in 30 years as a federal employee, you're going to receive the upside of the stock market over your career, and you will benefit from those uh, high returns as as your balance keeps growing year after year. I saw it during my career, and uh, I was just amazed. And maybe discuss the implications of reaching that million dollar or two million, or in your case, three million. You're definitely a one percenter or a tenth of a one percenter in terms of TSP savers. But what does that mean in terms of what you can do financially when you do retire? There's a meaning to the million. Well, that is a very big question for every uh, federal employee, what to do with their TSP when they do retire. It can supplement your income. You can go on some nice vacations. 
You can do some charitable donations. You could do any number of things. But for me, I saw it as a treasure chest in the event that I have to go to a long-term care facility, both for me and my spouse. In the event that day happens, we would have enough resources to handle that type of situation. So, yes, I do enjoy my TSP withdrawals, but I want to make sure that I have sufficient funds in the event it's needed for long-term care. Got it. Yeah, so that insurance is a great feeling to have because you know what long-term care costs these days. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. What are some mistakes people make that retard their ability to get to that million-dollar level, would you say? Well, certainly you do not want to panic when there are some downward trends in the market. And every time you panic, you sell your shares. And when you sell your shares, you recognize a loss. Uh, That is just not the right thing to do. The best thing to do is just to weather out the downward trends in the market. And I have done that my entire federal career. And I had just waited uh, six months to a year, and I found that it had bounced back. Now, another uh, thing that people really need to be watchful of are these uh, investment forums like on Facebook, where there are people out there giving financial advice. You don't know who they are. They could be complete strangers. You don't know what they've accomplished in their TSP. And it's very dangerous to take advice from uh, those types of sources. Uh, I would recommend to avoid those. The other thing is, too, as you age, to beware of the scammers, because that's an increasing problem for people at all economic scales, all socioeconomic scales. Yes. Uh, I've had many friends and clients who are approached by uh, financial people uh, in all avenues of the financial industry from let me manage your TSP to selling you gold coins to selling you annuities. Uh, You have to be very, very careful with these solicitations. And look, you know, there's someone out there that's trying to scam someone on any level of your life. Uh, and you have to be watchful of that always. Yeah, this is Amazon reaching out. You need to update your payment methods, you know, this type of thing. Just it's it's incessant. And now they're doing oh, it by text and by email. I, I get three to four uh, scam emails a day, and my business account gets dozens of scam emails a day. Uh, it's just part of life. You have to tolerate it. You need to be watchful. And the best thing to do is to delete them. And the TSP and federal agencies offer resources to help people maximize and optimize their savings. And a lot of employees maybe overlook those services. Yes. The TSP website has 35 years of historical information on the TSP. And there are many webinars and uh, resources and articles and newsletters on the TSP. It's there for every federal employee and every federal retiree to take advantage of that resource. And yes, employees should just spend a little bit of time each week reviewing as much information from the TSP website. Very important. And it's apparently important to TSP reflecting what employees worry about because they publish the numbers of people that have reached that million-dollar mark, and that's kind of incentive to join the club. It's an elite club. It welcomes new members. There's always something that causes the market to have a little bit of a blip. But right now, it's coming back pretty strong through the end of this year. 
So you're going to see a lot more TSP millionaires. Well, in honor of the late Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway, who passed away just yeah. a few days ago, let's say, don't ever lose faith in the power of compounding, right? Yes, he was a big fan of the TSP. I heard him speak about it in several interviews. He saw it as a great opportunity for federal employees to take advantage of it. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and a trillionaire, I guess you might say, or triple millionaire is a better way to put it, owner of AG Financial Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Cloud security misconfigurations and other mistakes can lead to trouble to help agencies avoid security slip-ups. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has released new standards for Gmail and other Google Workplace products. Now, this follows last year's release of configurations for Microsoft 365 products. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday caught up with the director of Cyber Shared Services at CISA, Chad Poland. What went into these baselines is, you know, we learned and we worked with the Microsoft effort. And we really stood on, you know, the shoulders of that of that effort and really, you know, went through and methodically analyzed which threats could be prevented by which settings when in, in the, you know, the admin console for Google Workspace, uh, which, you know, we feel provides a very strong level of security to prevent, you know, misconfigurations, which have been known to um, allow threat actors uh, into these environments. The baselines themselves cover, you know, nine core Google Workspace products. So the, the full gauntlet that users would be, you know, familiar with and using. And they cover a total of 151 uh, very specific and prescriptive security policies that really hardens the environments once those organizations adopt the baselines. And for federal agencies, what can this tool help them do as far as the cybersecurity things that they, they need to do either by law, by directive or whatever else? The great thing is, and what I like to say about our, both the Scuba Gear tool and the Scuba Goggles tool, is that those tools operationalize our guidance. You know, our, our guidance is useful and, and if folks read through it and they can see the actual changes and how to implement it. And, you know, actually each one of those policy statements mapping back to a MITRE attack framework to, so, to show that, like, this is what it's going to prevent. But, you know, the tool is where the rubber meets the road and it allows organizations to run in their environment and quickly see exactly where any deficiencies against the baseline are. And so it really allows them to focus their, you know, their scarce resources and their time to really shore up those differences or those settings that aren't properly configured. One unique thing we've developed with uh, the Google Workspace product is we also have something called the Configuration Drift Detection Tool. Uh, and so what this allows, once an organization applies all the baseline settings, any change to that baseline will automatically notify an administrator to an change. So this is, you know, very relevant and important to security practitioners that, you know, if a third actor gets in and opens up a, a door or, or, you know, reduces some sort of security posture, it alerts them right away that something is amiss and, and they can take corrective action to fix it. And I wonder, you know, related to CISA's secure by default work, why in some cases these configurations are even configurable, you know, if there's a baseline level of security that everyone should be working toward, have you had those conversations with the vendors here? What, can you just explain a little bit more about why the, this is even an option if security is obviously very important? All of these baselines are, are developed in that same that, that theme of uh, secure by design and specifically secure by default. You know, what, one thing that's unique to our SCUBA baselines is that they're geared towards the federal enterprise, uh, which, you know, we've determined has a specific, uh, you know, risk tolerance that, you know, we want to make sure that it's more applicable to the federal space. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we would love it and we continue to have that conversation about making sure that uh, default settings are at the highest level of security for, for end users. Um, we've seen that, you know, with recent announcements that, you know, by default, um, phishing resistant MFA is enabled uh, for, for users. And, you know, we applaud the organizations that have adopted those more secure by default um, practices. And so, yeah, we've, we've talked about uh, scuba goggles, and I know scuba gear now, I think, has been out, as you mentioned, for a year, and there were a number of agencies that had been piloting the use of those configurations. Do you have any update on just where that pilot is at and where it's going in the future? 
Yeah, you know, we've had um, tremendous success and um, feedback from the community, both federal and non-federal users. Uh, with, you know, the original scuba gear tool, we've, um, in our latest release, which is point, uh, point 0.3, I think we're about to surpass 3,000 downloads. Um, so obviously that's, you know, way more than the, uh, the federal users. Um, and so that's just a testament that, you know, it's very, it's very user-friendly, it's usable. People are, are deriving value to secure their, uh, their environment. Um, here shortly, we will be releasing our first major update to both the Microsoft 365 baselines and the scuba gear tool. So that'll, that'll bring the baselines and the tool to a version 1.0. You know, that, that's going to come out shortly. And I think that's really going to answer a lot of the feedback and, and comments we've gotten during those pilots. You know, we piloted with 12 agencies, but we also had, you know, public comment from, from users outside of the federal space who had either questions or feedback. Uh, on you know specific policies on the utility of the tool, and we've taken that all in, incorporated it. Uh, and the cool thing that you know we're, we're running both these efforts concurrently is that we've been able to take that feedback from the Microsoft effort and apply it to the Google you know secure configuration baselines, so that we're going to put out a you know an equally strong user friendly set of resources and tools that really help end users at the end of the day. And, and you know that's what it's all about is making sure that uh, what we're producing. As direct impact to securing environments, whether it's a, you know the federal government agencies that are adopting it, or you know our SLTT and critical infrastructure partners across across the country. And moving forward more broadly with the secure cloud baselines, I know you've put out a number of vendor agnostic tools as well. What's next for the SCUBA program more broadly as you continue to work these different uh, configurations and baselines? What's most important to the program is increasing adoption. We want you know as many organizations to adopt these, whether they're using Google or Microsoft. Uh, and so, you know, what the, what we're going to do starting next year is a series of hands-on workshops uh, that will be, you know, hosted in the, the D.C. area. We're going to bring in users, practitioners from federal space. It's going to be available both hybrid, virtually, and in person. We're going to bring in some of the pilot agencies that, you know, actually went through and implemented the baselines and, and talk about, you know, how they helped secure their environment, any any issues they may have faced that can be um, helpful and insightful to other users who are, you know, starting out on this journey. But at the end of the day, you know, we want to increase adoption. We want people to understand how to use it, what applying the different security policies does to their environment. And so, you know, that's one of our, our main focuses for the next year. Chad Poland, Director of Shared Cyber Services at CISA, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.